This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Good morning, Jan. How are you? Good morning. Now, David, you told me you've got a big book. I've got a big book about bicycles, believe it or not. <laughs> and, and alliterative at that same point. So what could possibly possess someone so much that they would want to steal bicycles? Now, in Philip Salem's latest novel... We find out. So, Philip, welcome back to 3CR. Hello, David. Good to be back in a, a confined space where we're allowed to be. <laughs> <laughs> Together in a confined I'm space. I'm sure everyone's happy about that. Breathing over each other. Now, Sweeney, your main character in this novel, has a predilection for stealing bicycles. But why and what does he do with them? Well, the, um, the, the obvious answer to that is you have to read the book to find out. But that was my question. I mean... Um, Everyone asks usually at some point how a book came to be. And um, there was a bike on our street. It had been parked there for um, five minutes. The woman went inside to get something, came back outside and it had gone. Looked up and down the road, nothing to be seen. The woman was my wife. It was her bike. And, <laughs> and from such a simple beginning, I thought, well, you know, it wasn't a very fancy bike. Why steal it? Then I thought, suppose someone was compelled to steal bikes for a different reason than the obvious, like joyriding a bike. I mean, I think someone probably rode this off up to the street to where they were going and dumped it, never kept it, never even bothered to sell it. But suppose someone was compelled, suppose someone was under some kind of inner spell. And let's add another layer. What makes you think you could get away today? With stealing a bike with CCTV footage and all the coverage and surveillance we have going. So it seems like a ridiculous thing to do. Well, particularly because Sweeney, my main character, doesn't steal one bike. He is a compulsive bike stealer. He, bike, he steals many bikes. And um, he returns a lot of them at night, <laughs> undercover as it were. But he steals them at any time. And one of the ways he thinks he can get away with not being seen is he makes sure no one can recognise him. And how does he do that? Well, he paints his face with all sorts of peculiar designs. Because this sort of basically enables him to get around the CCTV coverage, which is aiming to look for particular features, and he changes his face. Yeah, well, CCTV has two two basic functions. One is to just to, to see, in other words, to make a record, visual record of what is going on. But... And at another level, there's facial recognition technology, and that is based on an algorithm which actually determines the points of recognition on a face and makes it into a person, if you like. Or rather, as, as the, the boss of one of these companies says, a citizen, not a person, a citizen. And can we evade being noticed given all of this surveillance that's taken place. Yes, well, if, you, if you're clever, you can, by disguise, as Sweeney paints himself, you can remove the identity of points so the algorithm can't read the mess or the confusion it's looking for cheekbones eyes distances between chins that but it's, sort of thing. it's not just visual surveillance though i mean if i go into a supermarket and pay with a card it's logged yep. what i've purchased yes well fortunately stealing bikes doesn't require a card <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't go to bunnings to do it <laughs> now Sweeney's got an interesting background. He's rather troubled. He lives on the fringes of society with some rather unusual people as well. Well, he, Sweeney is a divided man. As it says, he's a divided man folded down into a skinny man. Um, he's, uh, he lives, he's inherited a very fancy 
place he would never expect to have bought and wouldn't want to have bought, but he can live there. But because of some parts of his background, he's chosen to live part-time in a rooming house with a very strange um, set of characters, and one in particular who um, he finds, well, I think more than interesting, I think necessary. But they've all got unusual names, you know, the sheriff, goatee, Jim Smith, ordinary names and such like. But he's had time in prison where he's been bashed and uh, therefore he's had to have a a plate inserted in his head. He's had a a troubled family background prior to that. And so he's actually seeing a psychiatrist, Asha Sen, and she's a proponent of EMDR, eye movement desensitising and reprocessing. A way of reading people? It's a way of uh, reading people so they can also be, become aware of how they read themselves, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a questionable therapy. I'd have to say that as a psychiatrist, um, she has decided to learn it as, a, as a, one of the tools that she might use. It's not a, a normal part of psychiatric um, uh, training and or, you know, practice. But there is a lot of interest in it. It's been running. This this is a therapy that has been around for thirty years, and I know some psychiatrists who don't believe in it for a second. But it has a pretty good record for trauma, for coming to terms or getting uh, the. I was going to say the patient, the client, accustomed to um, looking into their trauma without getting freaked, further freaked out by it. But it's actually a very convenient narrative device. Oh, yes. Uh, it just, just happens to be a novelist's um, gift. Because you can go back yeah. and, and tap into the experiences with, in someone's life, and that gets us into Sweeney's background as well. So there's one way of reading, but we've got counterpointed to this, Ash's husband, Bruce Leach, His profession is surveillance, the latest biometrics. He is the manager of a facial recognition technology firm. And so now you've got two ways of reading people, which is the more appropriate. Well, you know, um, Leach works for, in effect, the state. And so what he does is he he identifies the the external aspect of a person for state surveillance, and that's not always uh, by any means benign. That's, you know, more often to track you, to worry you, to haunt you, <laughs> and, and it keeps going on forever. We all know about that. As I say, even Bunnings now has it, to look for people who might be nicking stuff from the shelves. But the state is using it for all sorts of reasons. They say for counter-terrorism, but it's worldwide. It's in Most countries have it extensively, and Australia is expanding it. But all it does is read the outside. The algorithm says this person comparing one image of the face with millions of images says it's this person alone. Okay, what this information here is called Jim Smith, let's say, except it isn't Jim Smith in the novel. However, um, a psychiatrist is looking for the inner identity and the person themselves, I mean, I believe that we all want to be recognised. So we have an irony because Sweeney is someone who is, when he's outside in public, not all the time, but often, he's hiding himself. He doesn't want to be recognised, but he's going to a therapist to be recognised for whatever it is that he needs to know. But here we go again. We've got another layer also of surveillance, if you want to call it that. Um, Sweeney's had an MRI. Asher Sen's had a, a knee op. So... Uh, 
people are sort of doing scans uh, physically, she realises the imagery of surveillance is silent, like the imagery of dreams. Pain makes no sound in the cameras. What an eerie world the human operators must live in. Each day the outside world of noise is watched in a world of silence. So we choose means of surveillance, be it arthroscopic surgery and things like that, mm. but they leave out, every one of them leaves out some particular nuance that fills in the character. Yeah, and that's what novels are for, to try <laughs> to try to fill in some of that. It's, it, it's, it, it is the fascination. I think that's why most people find other people and themselves, to some degree, fascinating, because you know you don't know. There's so much you don't know. So the, the problem with that, with, with the, I would call the antisocial person, is that they project stereotypes on people. And I think that the role of the novelist, one of the roles of the novelist, is to undo stereotypes. And so to create characters who, are, who defeat any kind of simplistic uh, um, you know, assessment or, or judgment, you know. But society is trying to impose Absolutely. those images and stereotypes as well. And also, a lovely quote here, algorithms have no humanitarian need to compare and include us within the known and the accepted to be tribal. We, we as people are tribal, and yet we're going to a technology yes. that is an algorithm. And, and at one point, I think um, Sweeney says, I've become a barcode. Yeah, yeah he, he, he face paints, if you like, the, the barcode over himself. As a, as a, I mean, it's, it's, it's done deadpan, as it were, but he does know that this is really, this is really quite comical in its own way. He doesn't, I mean, it's for the reader to realise <laughs> he, he's make it, made himself a, a commodity, but of course it wouldn't make sense because it's not a real barcode. But someone looking at him would think, this guy looks like a barcode. He looks like something on the back of the, you know, off the back of a book even. Um, uh, but he also sometimes looks like a Bridget Riley painting. He sometimes looks like David Bowie. He sometimes looks like, when I say looks like, I mean he looks like the images we identify those people with, not faces, mm. but their work. And, and by the way, with both, you know. And, but also the cameras are looking for particular features and yes. you change that framework. But yeah. now you also add another layer of facial recognition, if I can call it that. And We, we haven't really introduced Rose and we haven't got much time, but um, natural facial recognition is there as well. And the quote is, if I can find it quickly enough, uh, in the book is... Afterwards, I wonder what we're after, with the sunlight coming into the room and across the bed, she notices some markings on his face. At first she thinks it is a trick not of the light but the shadows. So she reaches up and gently tilts his face so the sun falls across him. There is a pattern forming, very slightly emerging through the surface of his skin. She noticed it as he came, his orgasm flushing his face, like hers does. She knows because lovers have told her. But the flush on Sweeney's face has passed, and this patterning is increasing on his skin, the forms of plants and flowers, gentle curves and colours. We have a, a natural barcode, if you will. Well, I don't want to say too much about this part of it, but Sweeney is... I have to say that the novel is an, it reads on page to page as a realist novel, but there are many things that happen in it which are rather closer to magic realism, or fantasy or fabulism. Things happen, are described deadpan again in the narration, but they're not things that really happen. And something is happening to Sweeney, 
above and beyond and behind or within his his face painting. But but even if we, if we leave aside the magical realism, just that flushing of the face is yeah. telling us yes. something if we know how to read it. Yes, exactly. And then, you know, what you make of that beyond... Um, Shall we add more complexity? <laughs> if I can, if I can read these this words, is, this is happy complexity, Dave, <laughs> for the for the potential readers out there. It's not difficult. It's fun. Prosopag- <laughs> prosopagnosia. Prosopagnosia was was uh, featured in my um, novel, The Returns, because there's a woman who has it. And it means um, they lack facial recognition at all. They cannot. So they're face blind. Yeah. So we can't. It's a natural condition. Yeah, natural condition. But you can't recognise Oliver Sacks had it. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> how do we read people? Parade- Paradolia. <laughs> yes. That's what the images that we see um, are read in our brain as faces. So in other words, there isn't a face there, but we see the image and we get one. So that's, a, that's an ironic twist on mm. the fact that he's removing his face by painting it, the image of it. Whereas sometimes you can look at a pattern and see a face that wasn't there. Yeah, Christ in, in a slice of bread sort yeah. of thing. As Da Vinci said, it, the, the artist must look upon the wall and uh, look at the mould for ideas of, of images. Yes, yeah. but the, we're naturally disposed to look for such things, to see a face or to, to identify. Gets back to the tribal thing. Yeah. we are, And that's another irony because while Sweeney's on the fringes and wants not to belong... Of course, the tribal element, both of his desires and of ID, is to say that you do actually belong within a, a you know an overall species. Sure. But it's, it's part of our, our physiology to absolutely to look. yes. But let's place this then in an immediate context. You actually mention robo debt in the novel, so these algorithms are being used to define people. But dare I say, uh, Optus and Medibank Private. Yes, it just doesn't stop, does it? I mean, the, th- the thing about this is that, that states, once they have technologies, were just are ruthless, mm. merciless, and and uh, ruthless. No, no pity, no ruth. Mm. <laughs> uh, they do not care. All they're doing is considering their own particular interests, which are which are not, you know, in the interests of humanity. They're in the interests of institutions, mm. and finally, the state. You know, and money. Let's face it; it's to do with money, either saving it or making it or something. And they don't controlling it. They don't see the person. No, no, yeah. the person isn't there. Yeah, and as you say, through uh, authorship, through writing, and you've actually also got examples of writing in the novel, keeping a journal, yes. uh, a tutor in prison to get them to write about experiences. Yes, but you yourself, as a novelist, giving life-shaped dimension to the eccentricities of life, stealing and returning bikes. Yes, well, I think that the thing is that writing, I, I, I was debating about whether I would have writing within a book, which is writing. And I thought, well, it's a yet another version of identification, self-identification and um, identifying others. And so in this case, people are writing for therapeutic reasons, not as creative writers. Though Sweeney gets confused about whether he's doing one or the other, <laughs> which is natural. People do. Some people think they start keeping diaries and then they end up having novels. And we know famous people have done precisely that. <laughs> but you as an author would be finding yourself as well in this process of writing. Oh, and losing myself as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well no, it's, it's a, well, there's a, there's a, this is where projection is interesting. When, you, when people project stereotypes onto others, it's, it's not a good thing, though it is also tribal to do so. 
In other words, this is how I find you belong, by, by saying you're this, when in fact you may not be. But as a writer, you're also avoiding um, uh, personality. As Eliot said, to some degree, he was talking about poets, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an escape from personality. So uh, he's talking about personality, but I, I look at writing as a deeper thing than that, much deeper than personality. It's to do with psychological character and, and, and sort of a state of consciousness. It's a, it's a species consciousness to create. And people do stereotype, but when you get it to the point of an algorithm where the state is stereotyping yeah. through yeah. a barcode, through reading a feature and ascribing a particular quality to yeah. it, that's when it becomes increasingly dangerous. And we're living in that age today, which is, is in many ways frightening. Philip, I can't do the novel justice because there's so many other aspects with characters we haven't touched on, experiences. Every so often, I was taking notes. Oh, and, we have drones as well. Drones, of yeah. <laughs> drones, uh, which are part of the surveillance system. And, in this and case. I was, I was taking notes as I was going, and I just lost it, ran out of space <laughs> on my, my my sheet there. But it's a novel about who we are, how we are seen, and how we see ourselves. And the different narrative threads in our lives, some of which we want unravelled, some of which we want to keep private. So the novel is Sweeney and the Bicycles, starting with a simple premise of stealing a bicycle, the author Philip Salem, and it's a transit lounge release. So Philip, thank you once again for talking with me. Thank you very much, David. And Jan. Oh, well, thank you, Philip, and thank you, David. Now, as Philip turned up here, which was lovely, unfortunately, my author is sick, so she didn't come, but I want to tell you about her book anyway. And But first of all, do you have siblings? Do you love them or do you even like them? This is at the heart of Peggy Frew's novel, Wildflowers. Meg, Nina and Amber are three sisters who have always found their own parents wanting. Their father gazed into the horizon and had his own thoughts. Their mother, Gwen, supplied food but no curiosity. Enthusiasm and obedience were not what they were about as parents. Meg, the oldest, mothered her two younger sisters more than their mother did and now, at over 40, she still does. However, it is Nina that we meet first. She's 37 years old and she's certainly having her own crisis. She has gone into minimalism. She's packed up all her things into boxes that are littered around the house. There's nothing in her cupboards. She's only eating toast and eggs, the shells of which she is throwing out the kitchen window. And the clothes she is wearing are the ones she finds outside Salvation Army drop-off sites, except for the underwear. She's had a series of lovers who have bought her lingerie over the years and she's wearing it whether it fits or not. Why, we ask, and what has led her to live like this? I'm not sure if it's Nina, the middle child complex, but she doesn't have a strong identity of who she is or what she wants. It's the male gaze she notices most. Odd men have always looked at her. She's intelligent, she's been to university, and it's here she studies the old masters, and she sees women like herself being debased by men. She thinks men would like to get her off base and do things to her, and she allows it. It was Nina's anthropology tutor 
who was responsible for her induction into the world of sex. And while it's likely that no further exposition is required, here it is anyway. Well, you'll have to read Wildflowers to find out, but it is most loveless, uh, depraved affair. Nina is a loner. She's shared, even in shared accommodation, she stays in a room. She's also a reader and she's very aware of what melancholy is. And of herself, she thinks, you are stupid, you are ugly, you deserve to suffer. In comparison, the younger sister, Amber, is full-on extrovert with charisma that sets her apart. She, at school, does drama, she's got parts in films, and she's got a very promising film career. Until we read about an incident when she was 14, Amber has a breakdown. She refuses to get out of bed, she refuses to go to school, and this changes the family. It is big sister Meg that does the hard love back then, and again, five years ago. She talks Nina into taking Amber on a sisterly holiday. And Nina's comment, that's a batshit crazy plan. As well as the holiday, keeping Amber hostage until she has changed her ways. Things do not go well. And this is a little bit from the book. It had been a Friday when they left Melbourne, which felt like an eon ago. And so Saturday had been the day of the stabbing, the trip to hospital, and then Sunday. Yesterday was the rain and Amber reappearing and then running off again downstairs with Meg. And so today was Monday, Monday the 18th of May. Only four days had passed. Now, I did read that Peggy Frew had read about an addicted son who had asked his father to chain him to a bed so he could go cold turkey from the drug he's on. And Peggy has written something that Amber said. She said, leaning across the table, her feverish face, she said, take me somewhere, lock me in a room, and no matter what I say, what I do, don't let me out of there. So it's Peggy Frew, who's writing about addiction and the concerns and stresses of all those who love the addict. So it's back to now Meg, who is really just wanted to be a mother. But after many miscarriages, that hasn't happened. And she shares the impossible combination of love and disappointment. It's where we question the difference between wildflowers and flowering weeds. The sisters are aware of their frailties, addictions and bossiness, but will they reconnect if they could control or even value these characteristics in Peggy Frew's The Wildflowers? Oh, there you have it. Oh, I had very attentive listeners there. But you two men who are wordsmiths, the word petrichor, P-E-T-R-I-C-H-O-R, Oh, I, I don't know it, but I certainly recognise it now. You've sp- spelt it. Yeah. In other words, I've seen it. Yeah, it was. The, it was kind of like. But is it a is it a biological name, a term? No, or it's not? a smell. Oh, it's smell. Yes, it's a smell. An olfactory term. It it's the smell of fresh rain on hot ground. Oh, <gasps> that's uh, why. Oh, that's why it says Philip Salem. Yes. Well right. done. Of course, which we well, all know. That, well, we yeah. well we we know the smell. We didn't know it was a name, and that yeah. was about the only thing that was actually uniting this family in the end. And love, love. But also, what comes through is is the 
individual nature of the characters, their eccentricities. It's our flaws that oh. make us who we are rather than a, a barcode which is trying to formulate and um, basically lock it in. Yeah. Um, so that, that fallibility is, is the important thing. Makes for interesting novels. It, well, and, and interesting writings. The, 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 my t- two of my female characters in my book are Rose and Heather. Oh, and there was a plant metaphor running between them as sisters who look alike. Getting back to another element of look, they look alike, but they're different, and they want not to be identified with each other anymore. Oh. But one of them wants to escape more than the other one does. <laughs> but they're plants, Rose and Heather, but, of course, very different plants. Yeah. What do you think about that wildflowers analogy, the difference between wildflowers and flowering weeds? That's what made me think of it. I hadn't, you know, clicked mm. to my, the connection with my own work. Because we define, once again, it's definition, we define weeds according to where they are and whether they are good or bad in those circumstances. In a wheat crop, some wonderful plants are called weeds <laughs> because they're not wheat. <laughs> but, you know, somewhere else you would think, oh, lovely. Well, yes. Have, have you ever had thistle soup? So a thistle is a weed, but you can make a great soup out of it. And it looks great. Yeah, you know. yeah. So it all it all depends on your perspective and and the context in which you're um, you're you're looking at something. Well, why did you give them your two characteristics flower names? I don't know to begin with. It's often the case with when, when writing, something just occurred to me that they have to be alike because they look alike. So they're plants, uh, plant images. Because I've seen, I have, I'll, I'll be cheating. To, <laughs> anyway, I I do know why. I, I've noticed some people who are gardeners who look alike. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> In other words, it, it, it was a composite. It came to me together, both the, the, the looks, the, the idea of not being able to identify which person I was looking at mm. without knowing them, the fact that they were gardening. And so there were plants in front of them and flowers. And I was thinking, well, they're like flowers that don't look, they're not the same flower, but they are together. But when you look at that whole world of biology and plants in terms of wanting, we are wanting to name them, to ascribe them to different uh, sort of uh, categories, etc. So part of that human condition is to label things and to compartmentalise them. It's just technologies enabled us to do that to the nth degree, which is now taking us beyond the human in some yeah. ways. I mean, I mean, we are... We are um, ourselves, our humanity is inescapable, even for the worst of us. There, is, there are elements of, of the humanity, but technology has none. Mm. You know, it's just, it's just a thing. And it's a thing that doesn't think, and it doesn't, uh, you know, as it operates in silence and it doesn't actually reconsider. When I'm not talking about artificial intelligence, which they are saying will be able, <laughs> or might already be able to uh, reconsider its own decisions. But ID, um, facial recognition technology is one step. It goes, kaboom, that's mm. that, you're done. But when we give it predominance, when we give technology the predominance over the human condition, that's when it's wrong. I that's see it right. in education all the time where we want to categorise schools and, and achievement rates, but it doesn't acknowledge the individual student and what they've gone through or how they came to be in that situation in the first place. Yeah, well, the thing about humanity is that we can change our minds. You know, And we do so frequently. And, and, and it's absolutely necessary. As much as we may resist it, we are capable of it. Mm. And the thing about technology, if it has too much power, 
It's the reverse. There's mm. no changing of minds. It's heartless, and it's it won't say anything other than, in effect, it's saying, I'm right. Mm. This is it. Yeah, because this is the only function I can perform. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Right. <laughs> well, there you go, Jen. That's a big discussion. But isn't, isn't it great that we've got so much creativity and oh, diversity? And, and flowers. In, and flowers, <laughs> flowers in published or not each week. Okay. Well, I um, chatted, well, I gave it a soliloquy about Peggy Frew's book, book Wildflowers. And I'd been talking to uh, Philip Salem about Sweeney and the Bicycles from Transit Lounge. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for listening in. <laughs> See you next week. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.